You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord, and it is written for our good. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. Would you bow your head, and let's ask for God's blessing now as we spend some time reflecting on this, his word. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do now come before you, your church, and... We join in the words of your son Jesus in saying that we acknowledge we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so now, Father, we need these words to come alive in our hearts and minds, for we've, they've grown dull to us, and we need your spirit to work powerfully, that we might taste the new life and the hope and the forgiveness that is found in Christ. It is in his name we ask this. Amen. Well, this week I read a series of articles from a variety of different publications saying that the year 2022 was the end of the superhero films dominating the box office. It's the headline of a couple of articles, and they had the data to prove it. 2022 was not a horrible year for superhero films, but they certainly didn't dominate as they had in years past. I was a bit shocked Some of you know I'm not a big fan of superhero films, and uh, when you send me pictures of you going to Comic-Con, I lose a lot of respect for you. But But I was shocked at how many people would uh, go to movie theaters between 2008 and 2022 to watch these superhero films, and I was absolutely baffled to find out there were 15 films during that period of time, which took in over a billion dollars in box office sales. And the question I was wrestling through as, I, as I, uh, I thought about this is sort of what brought about the end of the superhero genre, and I'm not sure. It could just be that there was money to be made there, and as with anything else in our world, as soon as there's a market for something, it quickly gets oversaturated. Um, but I couldn't help but think that there's something about these superhero films which tap into some kind of question and some kind of longing that is buried deep inside of every one of us. Uh, These films point to something that we all have a hunch about, maybe that we know deep down inside and we fear to be true. And that is, outside of the ordinary troubles of your daily lives, cars not starting, 
problem at work, TTC delays, all these sort of ordinary problems. Beyond that, we fear, and if we're honest, deep down we know there's probably something much bigger going on unbeknownst to us, some kind of major battle that we don't fully understand. Uh, you can see this, for example, when you saw this week that the FAA in the U.S. had to ground all flights for an hour because of, you know, some, some computer glitch and problem. Immediately on Twitter, no one assumes this is something ordinary. Everyone assumes this is some sort of, uh, of battle that's going on behind the scenes between hackers and other parts of the world trying to take down global travel, et cetera, et cetera. People always think there's some huge and major conflict going on that they are not privy to, and the, their fear is that they're naively going on with life and potentially going to be victims of this major conflict. And there's something about these superhero stories which tap into that and give you hope that maybe someone or something will come along and will stop this horrible and evil villainous force that is, that is, that is pushing and, and driving through an agenda which ultimately brings about our destruction. And it's no surprise. You flip through the news and it's impossible each week to not read something about war and new elements of conflict, global food insecurity, world peace, climate crisis, all these things. We're longing for someone something to tell us that they have the solution for these problems which seems so much bigger than any one individual actor, so much bigger than we can understand. And that's the beauty of these superhero movies. There is somebody that is able to do what the ordinary person can't do. Well, listen, if, if what I'm saying is true, and maybe you think I'm not. I'm, again, I'm not the biggest superhero film, but I think, I think that's why people long and love these things. Well, if that's true, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to us to find that the scriptures are telling us there is some kind of cosmic battle going on behind everything that, that is seen. There is something going on deep inside of each one of our hearts and each one of our lives and our families and in our institutions. There is something bigger than what meets the eye. And that battle is a, a cosmic battle that goes way back between the forces of a wicked angel and the God who created this world. And in this passage, we're getting a glimpse, maybe in some senses, uh, of the, f the beginning of the war, the battle, this epic battle that is going to take place between uh, these two forces, the superhero who will prevail over the dark villain who is hell-bent on destroying humanity. We're going to get a glimpse of this first passage, and it's my hope that this passage is going to, uh, in some ways, show us sort of the nature of what is going on all around us, but also give us hope for the victory that will inevitably be experienced on this earth and can be tasted of even today. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at this battle that we have before us. I want to look at the set setting of this battle, the tactics used in this battle, and the outcome of the battle. So first, let's, let's look at the, the, the setting or the, the sort of nature of this battle. Now again, Matthew is writing something of a biography of Jesus. I realize not everyone's here every week, and not everyone has memorized the previous sermons, uh, including the preachers. And so you may remember, though, that Matthew's book begins with this genealogy, and it traces G Jesus' origin story back to King David and ultimately back to uh, Abraham. And Matthew is, is telling a story of Jesus, this biography of Jesus, but he's doing it in such a way that the reader is expected to say, my goodness, that sounds familiar. I swear we've heard this before. And he's doing this over and over and over again. It starts with the genealogy, but then we find that Jesus' family has to flee to Egypt because of a, for, the, for their safety. And as we're reading that, we think, my goodness, that sounds familiar. And Matthew says, of course it does, because Israel had to flee to Egypt for their own safety during a season. And in the story of Jesus, we find a wicked king trying to kill 
all the little boys, including Jesus. And in the story of Israel, we remember there was another king, a pharaoh, who sought to kill all the descendants of Israel, all the male descendants of Israel in times of old. It's like a flashback. Jesus is, is saying, here's how, or Matthew is saying, here's how Jesus' life plays out, and it should feel familiar. It should feel somewhat similar to what we've seen before. Last week, Lyndon preached a great passage over, on the baptism of Jesus, but you remember he's baptized into the waters of Jordan. And again, your mind is to think, my goodness, there has been another time where people crossed through or were immersed in the waters of Jordan, where the waters of Jordan came over them. It was at the beginning of the conquest when Joshua led the troops into the promised land. Now Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, who's the son of Abraham and the son of the great king David, has been anointed and set apart by the Spirit in his baptism, anointed as a priest for God's people, as we looked at last week. And now, what do we find when the Spirit fully comes upon him? When, he, when, when the Spirit is on him in power, what do we find the Spirit doing? Well, the passage couldn't, couldn't lead you astray. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert, to be tempted for 40 days. And again, your mind is to flash back and say, we've heard this before. We've heard this before. Because you'll remember, it was in the desert or in the wilderness that God's people for 40 years were punished by God for their grumbling. Matthew wants you to see that something is going on. There's just constant flashbacks. You can't miss it. You must see it. Even if you didn't grow up reading the Old Testament, even if you have no Christian background, you must understand all these things are flashbacks to time of old. And if, in case you missed it, or in case you think I'm exaggerating with his 40 days in the desert and the 40 years of the people of Israel, when Satan tempts Jesus, he constantly responds with Scripture. But if you were to look at the Scriptures he quotes, they were all from Deuteronomy. They're all words that were used during the time when God's people were being punished, wandering in the desert. We're seeing it over and over again. Now, there's a couple of things we must wrestle through if we're going to understand that's going on. And the first is this. Why would the Spirit lead Jesus uh, into the desert to be tempted by the devil? The Bible couldn't be more clear uh, that God never, we're never to say God is tempting us. We're never ever to say that. James makes that abundantly clear in James 1. But what God is willing to do, and the word tempting has sort of two, two pushes towards it. It can mean tempting with an encouragement to fall, but it can also mean testing so that we understand the strength. The Spirit is leading Jesus into the desert that he might be tested the same way the people of Israel were in times of old. The other big question we must wrestle through then is who is the devil? The passage also refers to him as the tempter, and we also see Jesus referring to the devil as Satan, which is the Hebrew word, a Hebrew uh, translation of the Greek word for slanderer, devil, tempter, Satan. Well, listen, the Bible teaches that humans were created after God's own image, but they weren't the only things that were created. Obviously, we have all of creation that we can lay our eyes on, but they're also spiritual beings, unseen to us, called angels. And these angels were, in a sense, to be trainers or, or priests to teach and to guide human beings into their glorious status as sons and daughters of God. They were to have this supervisory role. And eventually the humans were destined, under the, under the teaching and tutelage of the angels, to rise and co become greater than the angels. To, to bear God's image in such a beautiful and marvelous way that the angels would then say, we've exhausted all we can teach. They have, have raised to the destiny that was always set before them. And the Bible tells us that there was one angel 
who in our passage we're referring to as the devil, the tempter, or Satan, whose duty was to minister to these first humans. And rather than training these first humans in what it means to be uh, proper image bearers of God and what it means to properly worship the God who created this world, this angel went rogue. This angel committed cosmic treason, rebelled against God, set out his own agenda, and sought to undercut God's kingdom, sought to take over God's good creation. This, this, this Satan, the tempter, the devil, he knows he's not, co, he's not a sort of a, a, on equal parts with God. This isn't a yin or yang situation. The devil knows that he is under <clears throat> God's mighty hand, that he is just an angel. He does not stand a chance against the power of God, and yet he thinks maybe he can deviate God's good creation. Maybe he can take over and have dominion over God's good creation as this wicked angel. And the Bible calls him the tempter or the devil. And I, I'll admit, it is, it is hard in our day and age to talk about the devil and to think about the devil because we have a propensity to mock the devil, to say, um, especially of the Christians who, um, you know, you watch somebody on January 2nd when they've sworn off soda, you know, crack open a Coke and drink it and say, well, the devil made me do it. Knock it off. You know, no, that's not true. You just wanted sugar and caffeine, and it's fine. But the devil didn't make you necessarily do these things. Um, this is such a low view of the devil, though. I, I actually think that there's actually good reason, and I think if you really think hard about it, to say that the sum of evil in this world is so much greater than any of the individual parts. How is it that so much evil can flourish and in a sense feel like it's calculated and part of a, a grander scheme? Well, the, the Bible would tell us that's because there is this unseen realm, this spiritual battle that's going on, and there is this angel who is working hard to pull more people into the rebellion, to usurp the authority that rightly uh, belongs to those who are in obedience to God's, uh, God's commandments, and to destroy God's good creation. And I put before you, you might think it's nuts to think there's a spiritual realm and a devil. You might think I'm crazy for saying I wholeheartedly believe these things. But I put before you that it takes a tremendous amount of faith to believe that all the evil you see in the world is just the products of wicked people. Because deep down in your heart, you have to know, you have to know as I know, no matter who you see coming on television, as wicked as they might be, as horrendous as they might be, you have to know that you have more in common with that other human being than you have different. And that ought to disturb you. <laughs> that ought to shake you. And because of that, I can't help but believe that it takes some sort of unifying force to make evil sort of become the evil that it is today. The Bible says that this is who the tempter is, this is who the devil is, and he leads Jesus into this grand showdown in the desert, this first battle. He's repeating the story of Israel when he gave to Israel. Uh, he, he tempted Israel by uh, putting the idea in their mind that they deserved better food, and uh, they grumbled against God and were punished 40 years in the desert. But you may also remember that we're getting flashbacks to a story even prior to Israel of when Satan was in this paradise garden with God's first creatures, Adam and Eve. And rather than being a faithful teacher, what does he say to them? He reminds them of how good certain food looks. He challenges God's teaching about particular food, and he gets them to not trust God, but to grab and seize food as their own that God has not given to them. What we're seeing here is a battle of epic proportions, the battle of all battles. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. I, I hope no one was traveling this week, as I already discussed, uh, this issue with the FAA computers being down for almost an hour and all the flights being delayed. I think it was on uh, Wednesday or, or Thursday. 
And my understanding was, as soon as this error was found in this uh, system, this sort of logistic system that, that the airlines use and that the pilots use, uh, they had no choice but to ground the flights for great risk of, of, of planes colliding and planes not understanding uh, routes and coordinates, coordinates with which they're to fly to. My understanding is, as soon as they realized there was this problem, they had to go through every update that had taken place and sort of unwind every update until they figured out where the error had come in. And so they, they went through every individual sort of, uh, I don't understand how coding works. Some of you guys are into that stuff too. That's up there with superheroes for me. But they had to unwind all the coding and all the updates and all the files that had been linked until they eventually found that one corrupted file. And then after they fixed that corrupted file, then they had to let the system go back and replay where it had been to establish order again through this logistics program. And in many ways, what you're seeing, this is the nature, this is the setting of this battle. What you're seeing is this. God, <laughs> in Jesus Christ, is walking back that point where all that air had come in, that corrupted file had come in. And that corrupted file came in not just in the people of Israel, but it actually came in all the way back to the garden. And with this battle being set up with Satan, the tempter, with it in regarding food, God is moving back like these troubleshooting, uh, you know, these technicians that are troubleshooting. And he's going back to where the problem corrupted the file. He's going back to find and to isolate that moment so that it can be fixed and redone. And that is what is happening in Jesus here. The, the grand problem of the earth, the problem that separates God and humanity, that puts his image bearers on a corrupted path towards evil. He's winding the story all the way back and saying, it's happening again. Here we are again, that deceiver and that image bearer of God, God's son. They are at it again. So this is the nature of the battle, is that God is going back into history and getting to that moment where the corruption happened and beginning the process of undoing that so that we might have a system that functions properly again. Let's look now at the tactics of the battle. I haven't preached in a while, so I have to remember to watch the time before some of you start standing up and stretching. Let's look at the tactics of the battle. What are the tactics of the battle that we can see used by the tempter? Well, uh, the question to ask is, um, first, before we even think about the tactics, is how is it that temptation can come to Jesus? Now, if you grew up in the church, you know the stories of the temptations of Jesus, but if you spend some time thinking about it, this is actually really complicated. It's really, really hard to understand. How is it that God's Son, who we, call, who we worship and proclaim as the sinless Son of God, how is it that he could face temptation? And in many ways, our experiences of temptation have almost a uh, very little overlap with this experience of Jesus. Why is that? Because most of our temptations, if we're tempted by something, it's because we've had a prior taste of it and we are put in a situation where we long for it again, okay? Let's say, you know, you steal from a department store, petty theft, slip something in your pocket, cash has been tight, it's easier to steal it and to walk out. You do this once or twice when you're in a bind to, to get in your mind, you justify it by saying you're in a pinch. The problem is, the temptation to steal comes again the next time you have to pay for this item. And that temptation rages because you remember how easy it was to slip this item into your backpack, into your pocket, and walk out. And so when we think of temptation, we often think of things that we formerly failed at, that now arouse in us a desire to, to do the very thing that puts us back where we were. Well, Jesus had never failed at anything. So what was his temptation like? And I have to believe that there's a sense in which Jesus' temptation is different than ours since he never gave in to sin. But it's also greater than ours because he also never gave in to sin. Think about it this way. In some senses, it's easier for the person who has a substance problem 
after 10 years of sobriety to not go back, fall back into this thing. Because they have a track record of 10 years of not doing it. In some senses, the temptation is not the same. But in other senses, it's incredibly difficult. Why? It's incredibly difficult because they haven't done it for so long. And in a sense, Jesus has never done these things. And so the curiosity of these things, the, the pull of these things becomes overwhelming in a unique and different way. And this is sort of the nature of his power, and he, and he is, or of his temptation. And he is not like a superhero drawing upon some kind of extraordinary power to fight these temptations. What he's actually doing is drawing on his dependence on the Spirit and his reading of the Word of God to sustain him in these particular temptations. He's not some sort of like fake, um, fully, we, we, we do confess he's fully God, but we also confess he's fully human. And in these temptations, we're seeing the fullness of his humanity be, being driven to temptation. And he's not doing some kind of divine trick to escape these temptations. He's depending upon the Spirit, trusting in the Word to fend off and to fight these temptations. So when the temptation uh, comes, Jesus is using God's word, and he's using uh, the, the, the leading of the Spirit to fight these things off. Now, this is, this, this is what is going on here, and what tactics does Satan use? Uh, Jesus' temptation might seem foreign to you, I, I must admit. I've never been in a situation where I've looked at a stone and I thought, boy, I am tempted to turn that into a loaf of sourdough. You know, this has never been something that has ever crossed my mind. And I've never thought, you know, I wonder if I throw myself down if the angels are going to pick me up. That might be a temptation of some, but these are, these are somewhat unique temptations. But what is Satan actually doing? What are his tactics here? Well, his tactics are this. Remember what happened last week. What happened at Jesus' baptism? What does the voice say? A voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And God's spirit descends upon Jesus, okay? He's just robustly heard who he is. And in a way that he was aware of, but now has a measure of confidence, he knows himself to be God's true son. This is his identity. And what does Satan immediately attack? Look at the temptations. What does he say? Verse 3, verse 5. If indeed you are the son of God. The tactic Satan uses is to get Jesus to, a, to doubt the very identity that God had pronounced over him, that God had said to him. He says to him, if indeed you are the Son of God. Jesus is in this incredible 40-day fast, right to the edges of what humans are capable of. And Satan gets in his mind and says, listen, if you're the beloved son of the king, why would you be hungry? What king's son sits around and is hungry? And in a sense, Satan is creative. He doesn't tell Jesus, well, you ought to come up with a harem of beautiful women. If you're his son, you deserve all the pleasures of the earth. No, that would be outright sinful. Obviously, that wouldn't be, wouldn't be something to tempt him. But he says, you don't deserve to be hungry. In fact, isn't your body something of a temple? Shouldn't you take care of your body? If you're the son, if you're the king of the son and the well-loved king, ought you not to get bread when you are in your most desperate state? He's trying to get Jesus to wonder, am I really the son that God said I am? Is that really who I am? Do I belong to the Son? As a point of application, friends, at your baptism, waters came over you. And I don't know exactly the details, and it might have looked different than it's done here at this church, but I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm certain, if you've had a Christian baptism, you heard that you were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And let me assure you of this. If you want to understand Satan's tactic in your life, you know, you can watch uh, The Exorcist, you know, the girl going down the stairs backwards and think this is what Satan's up to, doing weird things like this. This passage leads me to believe what he's more likely to be doing in your life right now, this week, this year, is getting you to doubt that you belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's getting you to doubt that when you heard those words of his institution, that I will set you clean, I will wash you clean, white as snow. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Satan's not as concerned about seeing someone walk backwards down the stairs like the exorcist as he is with getting you to say, that can't be true of me. It's just not true. This is the Satan we find in the Bible. This is his tactic over and over and over again. He wants you to question your identity. He wants you to doubt what God has said about you. And when difficult and painful seasons come into your life, it becomes extraordinarily hard to say what God says about me is true, even though it doesn't always feel that way. I know it to be true. I trust it to be true because God has proved to be faithful and all else have proved to be liars. Now, how does Jesus respond? He quotes scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy, the story of God's people complaining because they're not happy with this bread that God rained down from heaven. They're worried about food insecurity. And Moses said that they're being tested. Moses said, God has brought you to the desert to test you so that you know, might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus doesn't mention his sonship, but he does show that he is controlled by the Spirit, and he will let the Spirit control and dictate his life. Jesus quotes this piece of scripture not to say that food is unimportant and we should just always do Bible studies. Forget about food. Just do Bible studies. Don't, don't help with farming in, in, in impoverished countries. Just focus on Bible studies. No, that is not necessarily what he's saying. But what he is saying is this. That when we are in the midst of tempting, when, time, when it hurts and we have physical needs that overwhelm us and we are at a place where we're tempted to go to food or to trust God, the word is to win every time. And it's because we are well-loved children. Friends, in the face of your temptation, when was the last time you quoted scripture back to Satan? You know, I fear the thought of it. I know in my own temptation, I use my own reason and logic to try to trick myself out of giving in to temptation. When was the last time you turned to God's word and said, I have found that living by this word is more important than my personal comfort, my personal pleasure, my perception of what peace ought to feel like? Well, it's easy to do this when times are good, to read your Bible and say yes and amen, but in hard times, when you're questioning all of God's faithfulness, when are you quoting scripture back to Satan? Satan wises up the second temptation, and he realizes this, that he's going to have to quote Scripture back to Jesus. So he gives him most likely a vision, but takes him up to this high temple, quotes Psalm 91 to him, says, Throw yourself down from the temple. The Bible has made a promise that God will command his angels concerning you. Again, not a temptation that many of us have experienced, but what's going on? Satan is saying, if you are the well-loved son, then you deserve an experience of it. You know, you should have something verifiable, witnessed by all of your senses, objective to show that you indeed are the Son of God. So, so do this. And how does Jesus respond? Again, he turns to Deuteronomy 6 and he says, I will not. Nope, I won't put the Lord God to the test. Demanding miraculous protection as a proof to Jesus would be putting God to the test, the very sin that the people of old had committed. 
and he refuses. He refuses. The final temptation is Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, again, most likely in some kind of vision, if, if Jesus will just offer worship to Satan. Here we could say that Satan is offering to Jesus one of the greatest temptations that stands before all of us. You ought to have glory without suffering. You ought to have greatness without pain. You do not deserve the pain that should come from this one small act. All of it's yours. The ends will justify the means. Just question whether or not God truly loves you. Because if you're the well-loved son, why would the path include pain? Just worship me. You could have it all. Which one of us doesn't understand something of this question? We ask, why does it hurt? My fear is if Satan came to some of us in the midst of some of our pain, some of the darkest nights of our souls, says, listen, I'll alleviate it all. You'll live a life of middle-class joy. Your bank account will never dip down into zero. You will have an average life if you'll just worship me. The temptation would overwhelm many of us, but Jesus refuses. He says, the glory that rightly belongs to him as a son of the Father, he's willing to suffer if that be God's path towards it. He's willing to follow God's plan. Again, we might be thinking of Jesus as a superhero, as though he just flips on his, his God divinity to win these temptations. Now, I don't know a lot about uh, superheroes, but I do know this, that Batman doesn't actually have any extraordinary uh, skills, any sort of uh, special skills. He's, he's an ordinary human being who has sort of an alter ego. Unlike, say, Spider-Man, who was bitten by a radioactive spider. This is about the depth I go to. Um, Jesus is calling upon, like Batman, the scriptures that are available to each one of us. And depending on the Holy Spirit, which is also available to all those who are in Christ. And he's calling upon this to fight off these tactics of the devil, to fight off these particular temptations. And this is what Jesus is saying after coming uh, to you as the church and saying... Now, let me also just make one small point and continue to move on. And the point is this, that don't forget that these temptations come to Jesus after his high point of spiritual growth, after this high point of his baptism. There's a lie that some of you believe, that some of you want to believe, that if you just progress further in your spiritual life, temptation goes away. This, this passage should put an end to that. Great progress in the spiritual life does not mean until the Lord returns, we won't all be regularly facing temptation and need of accountability and need of God's word to sustain us and need of God's spirit to direct us. Again, this is a high point of his life. This is the tactic of the battle. Primarily, Satan's tactic is this, to say, you aren't who God says you are. Don't get, don't get a big head about it. But now let's go to the outcome of the battle. Let's look at the outcome of the battle. Because the devil eventually gives up with this battle. He loses this advancement, and he has to pull back. And the angels, who are righteous angels, come and minister to Jesus the way that the angels were supposed to do. Um, but in this passage, Matthew is doing something that I don't want anyone here to miss. He's doing something more important than just how to win victory over temptation. He certainly is giving us some wisdom about that. But he's doing something so much more. Because as I said, what we're seeing here is flashbacks to time of old. Again, the programmer going back and undoing the corrupted file so that, so that all that had taken place can rightly sort of reoccur. And what we see here is for us a picture of Jesus being a true and greater Israel. We see it so clearly. God sent Moses before Pharaoh, and before Pharaoh, Moses said to Pharaoh, Israel, God says to you, Israel is my firstborn, let my people go. And after miraculously setting the people of Israel free, headed towards the promised land, God's people grumble, and for 40 years, for 40 years, 
they're forced to wander the desert because they didn't trust they were actually God's firstborn, that he loved them. They didn't trust his provision. They listened to the voice of the tempter, and a corrupted file was entered. And Jesus is now going, and he's undoing this. And he's showing himself to be the true and faithful Israel. But it's more than that. He's actually showing himself to be the true and faithful Moses, the leader of God's people. Because when you look through the book of Deuteronomy, you also see of a 40-day fast, two 40-day fasts, actually, that Moses has in Deuteronomy 9. He goes before the Lord, he's brought into the mountain, and God gives to him his law and the covenant between the nation and Moses. And Moses says that while he is with the Lord on top of the mountain, for 40 days he fasts. He comes down from the mountain, and what does he find? God's people have been worshiping idols, a golden calf. He destroys the clay tablets. We find that God is ready to destroy the nation of Israel, but Moses again goes into the, into the mountain to intercede with God. 40 days, 40 nights, he doesn't eat. And he pleads with God. And he says, do not destroy your people for your name's sake. Lord, do not do it. And Moses is, is, is an advocate for God's people. In a sense, he's a mediator for God's people, and God does not destroy the nation of Israel. And here we have Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, fasting, just like Moses. But he is going to be a true and greater Moses, who's brokering a much better deal. Moses could only delay judgment, but he knew judgment would eventually come. Jesus is coming to eradicate judgment, to win a final victory over Satan, to right the relationship between God and humanity. But again, even unwinding that file further, Jesus is showing himself to be the true and greater Adam. Remember back to maybe season one, episode one, where Satan tempted Adam and Eve to question God's love, to eat that forbidden fruit. And eating that forbidden fruit plagued all, plunged all of humanity into a world infected with sin. And now Jesus is proving to be faithful, undoing the air, exposing the lies of the deceiver. He's proved to be faithful, and in his obedience outflows the antidote to undo the corruption of sin in this world. This is what we are seeing in this passage. All of humanity's failures, Jesus is reliving them and being the human we were called to be. That in him we might see the program that had been corrupted, righted, and new creation pour out into our world. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that when Satan comes and he throws in your face your sins and your failures. I shared this with our small group on Thursday. And he declares to you to be unworthy children of God. I'm quoting him. Deserving shame, death, and hell. He tells to the Christian this. You are to look Satan in the eyes and say this. Satan, you are right, and you don't even know half of the full story. But also tell Satan that Jesus was obedient for you. And therefore, though Satan has a case... The case of Christ is greater. Friends, this is the gospel, a story that's too good to not be true. God sent Jesus to be the human being we were created to be, obedient at all points. And when we trust in him, when we say he's our Messiah, when we say he's our Lord, our Master, when we say what he did for his people, I want to be part of that. I want to be linked up with this body. When we experience the waters of baptism and hear that we belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, his victory becomes our victory. His success in undoing the corruption becomes an experience that now works out, it's, it's, it begins working out into our life, that we taste and experience this new creation because of him. We were all in Adam, and in Adam plunged into this world of corruption, death, and sin. 
But in our baptism, we're brought into Jesus. By faith, we're united to Jesus and all that is true of him. All the victory that has come to him comes down to us. Friends, what we have before us is a great passage to give you wisdom as to how to fail, how to succeed in temptation. But this passage is telling you so much more. It's that one came and was victorious over all temptation. And what matters now is that you are united to him, that you trust him, that you say whatever he says is true, that his death is for me, his life, it was for me. The work that he did, I wanted to unravel into my life, spill into my life. I want to be so united to him that the fruit of his life starts to pour into my life. And this, friends, is exactly the promise of the good news, exactly what Matthew's going to tell us Jesus did. He's going to be victorious in this battle. He'll be victorious in a battle all the way to the cross. And he invites all of us to taste and experience that victory with him. This is the good news of the gospel. In the face of temptation, remember, one has been tempted as you in every way, and yet he was victorious. And when that comes, cry out to him, hold on to him, trust him, and know that Satan has no claim over you. This is the good news of the gospel. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be for us what we could not be, to be the Savior and to be for us this source of new life. We pray that you continue to pour out the benefits of Christ's life into our lives, whether it be through this table or through this, your word, or through those who need to be baptized, that we might be more united to this Jesus Christ and the benefits of his life and his death and his resurrection and of his obedience. They all might come to us and we might be caught up in who he is and the story of his life might begin to unravel into our life. Father, work this way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.